Fellow students, if you would turn to 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 8. We're going to take a look at a number of topics today. This is a very short chapter, 13 verses, but I'm going to talk really fast, so you're going to have to listen really quickly. How many of you notice that many things in life, as a matter of fact, as we age, most things in life are no longer black and white? They are not simply easy, right or wrong, yes or no. Many choices in life are, not, um, are, are, are simply morally neutral and we have freedom to choose. You want pork, beef, chicken, or fish for dinner? It's your call. God's fine with them. You like jazz, country, rock, blues, or my wife loves Zydeco? Your call. Whatever kind of music you like. Matter of fact, there's only 10 commandments that say what? You shall not. God gives us tremendous freedom to choose. The question is, how do you determine what you're free to do and what you're not free to do? Some folks make a list of do's and don'ts. That's no problem. The problem becomes is when they make their list of do's and don'ts, they try and make you follow their list. We call that legalism, right? The key to being right with God is just keeping more rules. The Pharisees had how many rules? 613. That's a lot of rules. They thought more rules means more righteous, right? More rules means more righteous. If that's true, then God must really be impressed with the United States government. <laughs> the United States Federal Register is a compilation of the federal rules and regulations that we are required to follow. Since 1976, and this is a couple of years old, since 1976, the Federal Register has 195,189 rules and regulations on the books. That must be followed. And that doesn't even include all the 50 state government rules and regulations, which are some order of magnitude beyond that. It's fascinating to me that the very first edition of the Federal Register was called the 10,000 Commandments. I thought that was intriguing. Now the problem with legalism is that you have to spell out every detail. For example, when you buy products in the store, have you ever noticed the instructions that come with them? They are rather interesting. I'll give you some examples. This was on a cat's blanket. So this is the instructions for a cat's blanket. It says, machine washable, remove the pet first. <laughs> okay. On a hair dryer, do not use while sleeping. I don't know how you'd use a hair dryer when you were sleeping, but apparently some people would try. On a clothes iron, do not iron clothes while wearing them. That would be a good idea. On a blanket from Taiwan, not to be used as protection from a tornado. Okay? On a Swedish chainsaw, do not attempt to stop the chain with your hands. Okay. So if more rules is not the answer, then maybe no rules is the answer, right? This is called license. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. The truth is, None, no, fun, no society can function without some kind of rules. If no one obeyed the stoplights, like they did this morning when you were on the way to church, right, we'd have a lot more accidents and deaths. 
The truth is, in most areas of life, God gives us tremendous freedom to choose. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is looking at singleness versus marriage, and he says, it's your call. I'm morally neutral on this. You can choose to be single, you can choose to be married, and I am A-OK -okay with either state, right? Not a problem. Paul today is going to address another issue that the Corinthians church have asked him, and they said, what's the correct behavior with respect to eating meat sacrificed to idols? Let me give you the context. The Greek and the Roman culture at this point were very polytheistic. They had a huge pantheon of gods, right? And these gods were... They viewed them as deities, but they were local deities for the most part. They had specific areas of power and influence, and they were lords, if you will, over specific areas of life. For example, Zeus was the king of the Greek gods, and he controlled the sky and the weather. So if you wanted something to do with the weather, you had to, you know, you had to talk to Zeus. His wife, Hera, she was the goddess over women, marriage, and the family. So if you had a problem in your marriage, you talked to Hera, right? Poseidon was Zeus's Greek brother, and he was god of the oceans and earthquakes. So if there was problems with storm and earthquakes, you had to talk to Poseidon, right? You, by the way, you put all these folks on speed dial in your phone so you could just zip them up, right? Aphrodite, completely missed it, Rob. I was too fast, right? Aphrodite was the goddess of love and beauty. So you would talk to her when you were aging and you needed help, right? Demeter was the goddess over agriculture on the seasons. So she was a god that this group talked to a lot when you were having problem with harvests and rainfall and stuff like that. Apollo was the god of music and medicine and Athena was the goddess of wisdom and war and all these other things. So all these gods had their domains and all the Greco-Roman society, they would sacrifice and placate these gods to keep them happy, to stop them from inflicting harm on their worshipers. So Paul shows up to Corinth, and Corinth is just covered with idols and temples and priests who are going to intercede with the gods on behalf of the worshipers, you, the people. So the Greeks and Romans had some interesting beliefs. They believed that evil spirits would try to invade human beings by attaching themselves to food before it was eaten. Kind of an interesting scenario. So every time you ate, there was a chance that one of these evil spirits would attach themselves to food and go inside you. And that was a significant fear in this culture. But you could fix the problem if you sacrificed the uh, food to a god. Then the demons would be removed and you would not be uh, attacked by the demons. So sacrificing food to a god was not just a way to placate the god and make them happy. It was a way to decontaminate the food, right? Today we call that barbecue, right? You decontaminate the food with barbecue, right? But back then you literally sacrificed food. They did. They sacrificed it on the altar and burned it up at that point in time as well. So here's how it works. The family has got a problem with a particular area of their life. They identify the God that needs to be placated. They bring an offering into the temple, right? Idols temple, and they have a priest there. And this priest is going to slaughter the animal, and they divide it up. One portion of this sacrifice goes back to the family who brought the sacrifice. One portion gets burned up, and it's usually the worst portion. They took the worst part and burned it up on the altar for a sacrifice, and then one portion goes to the priest. So you divide the animal three different ways. And the priest, as you can imagine, has a lot of excess meat because they can't eat it all. 
So they have a meat market right behind the temple, a butcher shop. And all this excess meat just goes for sale in the butcher shop, which is right next door to the temple, literally. So there's a restaurant there and a public meeting hall, kind of like we have a fellowship hall here next to the church, right? Say yes, there's a fellowship hall next to it, right? Where you can eat. Well, they do the same thing in these pagan temples. They have a temple and a sacrifice and the excess meat goes to the meat market and there's a restaurant right there and they barbie the meat up, grill it, and they serve it, right? And it's usually for sale at a pretty significant discount. So you could access this meat if you wanted to at that point in time. And these Corinthians Christians had some concerns about this meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And they could come in contact with this meat in a couple of ways. One, they go to the marketplace, they go to the grocery store, and they buy meat for dinner. And when they went to the grocery store, they had no clue whether this meat had been sacrificed to an idol or not. So they weren't sure it had been associated with idol worship. I had some concerns about that. Number two, you could be invited over to a friend's house, a neighbor's house, for a meal and served ribeye. And you had no clue whether that ribeye had come from this pagan temple and had been decontaminated from demons by sacrificing or whether it just came from a you know, regular supply. You didn't know. Thirdly, if you were invited to a public banquet, like a community banquet uh, or a non-religious festival, you probably knew the meat was sacrificed to idols, but you weren't really sure. Well, the Corinthian church is having troubles with this because there's two major camps with respect to how they view this meat sacrificed idols. One group said, this food is polluted. It's defiled, it's tainted because it's been associated with pagan uh, sacrifices and idol worship. We're not gonna eat this stuff. We think it's evil and wicked. And a matter of fact, we're offended that any of you would even eat this stuff, right? Can't eat it, it's off limits. Number two, the second group believed, y'all need to grow up. This food is fine. It's not tainted by idols. It's perfectly good ribeye. It's rare. It's beautiful, right? My spiritual life, my testimony, my walk with Jesus is not going to be impacted by eating this meat. I'm going to eat it. And as a matter of fact, y'all need to grow up and deal with it, right? So you have these two opinions about a topic that today we look at and go, well, that's pretty arcane. We don't sacrifice meat to idols today, but it was a major issue at that period of time, and it was dividing the church. So today, we don't spend a lot of time talking about meat sacrifice to idols and why that's a topic of controversy, but in our world, I guess, you can argue about anything. Churches have very strong opinions about stuff like Smoking, drinking, dancing, gambling, tats, piercings, entertainment, marijuana usage. I mean, you can, there's a whole laundry list of things that the Bible doesn't expressly forbid that you have freedom of choice to do. The question is, how do you go about deciding what you have freedom to do and what you should not do? The reality is in morally neutral areas, God gives you phenomenal freedom. But there are some areas that are not morally neutral, right? There are some areas where God has clearly spoken and said, it's wrong, don't do it. Committing adultery, murder, lying, stealing, coveting, idolatry, those are not morally neutral topics. Our culture says they're okay, but God's word says, 
I've forbidden them, they're not debatable issues, right? You don't have to have a prayer meeting about whether you should commit adultery. Probably not invite your spouse, they might put a bread knife in your kidney and that would take care of your problems. But if God has forbidden it, it's off limits, correct? We're not talking about the issues that God has forbidden. We're talking about morally neutral areas where you have freedom to choose and how do you go about making those decisions? Do you just make a list of do's and don'ts, legalism? Can you choose to do whatever you want to do as long as God's word doesn't especially forbid it? That's kind of license. So Paul's going to address this in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Now concerning these things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Here's the principle. People who know it all, I should just left that blank, you could fill that in. People who know it all puff themselves up. People who love others build them up. People who know it all puff themselves up. People who love others build themselves up. Now this quote, we all have knowledge, that's probably a quote that these Corinthians Christians used on Paul. And it was true. Knowledge is available to all, but knowledge is not always understood or applied. So one of these groups of Christians at Corinth says, we have superior knowledge about eating meat. We know the Bible doesn't forbid eating this meat sacrificed to idols. We know these idols are nothing anyway, and we know that meat sacrificed to these idols has no spiritual impact. We know that God doesn't care whether we eat this meat or not. So they ate the meat. But the problem is it was causing trouble in the church because the problem wasn't what they knew. The problem was how they were using that knowledge. They were arrogant. They were proud. They were superior. They thought these weaker brothers or weaker family members should just suck it up and grow up and deal with it. So they had knowledge, but they were proud about their knowledge. They were arrogant about their knowledge. They were literally puffing themselves up in self-centeredness. It's like a skinny little bird puff themselves up to look bigger, right? You get the picture? How many of you know people that like to puff themselves up to look bigger, stronger, etc.? Yeah? None of you? Okay, just make sure. Okay, some of you know people like that. Some of you actually tried that yourself. So this group is looking down on their family members who disagree with them. The truth of it is, all of us know less than we think we know. In March of 1967, Joni Mitchell wrote a song called Both Sides Now. It was popularized by a single, Judy Collins actually sang it in 1968. Here's the lyrics of the last verse. I've looked at life from both sides now, from up and down, and still somehow, it's life's illusions I recall. I really don't know life at all. How true. The first step to knowledge is what? Quoting Clint Eastwood. Man's gotta know his limitations, right? You have to know the limitations of your knowledge. Know-it-alls, how many of you know anybody who's a know-it-all? You have anybody in your life that that's just kind of how their MO is. They know it all. They've got the answers and baby, they'll be glad to share them with you even if you didn't ask. Yeah, okay. That was one of the wiser things you ever did, brother. 
here's the problem with know-it-alls. Know-it-alls usually don't know what they don't know. They're ignorant of their ignorance. And if you stay ignorant of your ignorance, you remain ignorant. How many of you, <clears throat> I think all of you progressed somewhat successfully through teenagerhood, right? You've all been a teenager and you still have scar tissue from it. But when we were teenagers, what? We knew it all. We had answers. The problem was, yeah, some of you haven't changed. The problem is <laughs> we didn't know what we didn't know, right? It's amazing how smart our parents became by the time we turned 25. I mean, they learned a lot between our age 15 and 25, didn't they? Wasn't it remarkable that 10 year period, how bright mom and dad, what we found out is what we were ignorant of a little bit more. And of course we're finding out all every day. Know-it-alls are kind of like the six blind men in the zoo. There are six blind men in the zoo and they're touching the elephant. And the one touching the elephant's trunk says, the elephant is like a snake. The blind man touching the elephant's ear says, the elephant is like this giant fan. The one touching the elephant's side says, no, 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 the elephant's like a wall. The blind man touching the elephant's leg says, the elephant is like a tree trunk. The one touching the elephant's tusk says, the elephant's like a spear. And the one touching the elephant's tail says, y'all got it wrong, the elephant's like a rope. And every single one of them were correct in what they did know. But they were completely ignorant of what they did not know. The truth is there's a lot more that we don't know than we do know. So the problem was these Corinthians have knowledge and they're very proud about it. And it blinded them to the purpose of that knowledge. We should be using our knowledge to what? Serve others, not puff up ourselves. Paul says your arrogance is blinding you to the needs of others in your church family. You have knowledge, but you're proud about your knowledge. What you don't have is love. And love is what will cause you to build others up. When we think about the infinite love and the infinite knowledge of God for us, it should make us humbly grateful. Rob's going to put an old lyric, a limerick up on the screen that goes like this. Isn't it odd that a being like God who sees the facade, still loves the clod, he made out of sod. Now, isn't that odd? That's talking about you and me, right? I know you think it's so-and-so. That's us, right? So God's loving patience with us should encourage us to be loving and patient with others. Since God is love, your love for others is proof that you know God. Interesting. Verse 4. Therefore, concerning the things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Here's the principle. God's word should be the source of our knowledge, not the wisdom of the world or the deception of the devil. God's word should be the source of our knowledge, not the wisdom of the world. Now see, some of these Christians in Corinth were refusing to eat meat 
because they thought that these idols had power and that eating this meat meant you were worshiping the idol. Paul says, let's get down to the facts. Idols are frauds. Idols are false gods. They have no power. They don't exist. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Remember, there's an infinite gap between the eternal, infinite God and his temporal, finite creation. And an idol is simply when you value anything more than the creator God, you have created a false God, but you haven't created the false God in reality, you've just created the false God in your own mind, right? Calling something a God doesn't make it a God. Here's why worshiping idols is so foolish. Psalm 115. Psalm 115, beginning in verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have e eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. And then Habakkuk 2, verse 19. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake. To a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. In contrast, verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. So you can see this infinite contrast between the infinite eternal God in the heavens who does whatever he pleases and idols which are lifeless, breathless, powerless, inanimate blocks of wood and stone. And you say, well, Brad... I realized that was back then. Well, if you've done any travel of any kind in the East, you realize that in foreign countries there are thousands and thousands of pagan shrines. And we have been overseas and we have seen people put food in front of these shrines. Buddha, Shinto, we've been to Japan, a number of other places like that. And what you want to tell these people is that idol is not going to eat your dinner because no one is home. You can go tap on Buddha's belly all day long and he's never going to burp. There's no one there, right? The food is going to be eaten by rats or mice or something, but this idol is powerless and it's lifeless. It's created by man, not the creator. So scripture says God alone is in the heavens. He is alive. He's the creator. But these idols you worship, they cannot see, speak, hear, feel, talk, walk, or smell. And these gods, so-called gods, exist in your own mind, but they're gods in name only. They're God in nature. They're not gods by nature. A few, few months ago, we were going through Exodus, and we were talking about idolatry. The you know, first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol or an image. And we said, an idol is anything that you value more than God himself. An idol is anything that you value more than God himself. And in the West today, most of our idols are not little stone statuettes, although both Buddhism and Hinduism have thousands of physical idols around the world. 
in the West, what are our idols? What do we value more than God himself? Well, if you look at how people spend their time and their money, you look at their calendar and their credit card, that would be kind of a measuring stick of what they value. And it seems in the West, we love to worship things like money. More is better. I've never had anybody say, yeah, less money would be good for me. Never heard that in 31 years in this business. Our idols are things like position. You know, how about a demotion at work? Doesn't that sound good? A demotion would be good for me. Less money and less title. I don't see anybody doing that. I think I see people craving more money, more position. How about more prestige? You know, let's go live in the poor part of town where there's less prestige. Uh, I don't need any degrees after my name or anything like, don't call me doctor, just, you know, Brad's fine. Uh, our idols are things like power. And of course, we look at our political process and that it tends to attract people, but most of us think power's better. More power is more better. Our culture is saturated with sex. We use sex to sell lug wrenches for heaven's sakes. Some physical things. We tend to like our smartphones, don't we? Don't we? Say yes. We look at the smartphones more than pagans ever looked at their idols. Don't we? I'm not saying it's not a tool. It's only an idol in your mind. There's nothing inherently wrong with a smartphone. It's a tool, but you can worship anything. Just check it out. Better technology. More likes on Facebook. There's some people that really have a problem with worshiping more likes on Facebook, which is human opinion. More and better stuff. More and better experiences. Altered states of consciousness. That's going to be a big thing. Americans love their high-def screens at least as much as a Hindu loves their stone statue. Probably more. But see, we're in this culture so we don't see because it's like a fish. You talk to a fish about water. The fish says, water? What's water? Well, you can't know it if you're in it. We talked about this a couple of months ago. I almost got stoned. Try and take away somebody's smartphone for seven days and see what happens. Try and take away your smartphone for seven days and see what happens. Go on vacation without it intentionally choose a vacation spot where you have no cell coverage. Give yourself three days to go through withdrawals, and then you come back. You know, you know, you know. Here's the problem with all of this idolatry. No amount of money, sex, power, technology solves life's fundamental issues. Where do they come from? Why am I here? What's my purpose? Where am I going? And it doesn't solve the problem of death. Only Jesus only the living God can solve our problem of life and death and eternal destiny. So Paul says, look, these idols that you guys are fearing are nothing. Don't worry about it. Eating food to them means nothing. But, verse 7, not everyone knows that. Not everyone has that knowledge. But some in the church, being accustomed to the idol until now, Eat food as if it were sacrificed to a real entity called an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But the reality is, verse 8, food will not commend us to God, neither we are the worse if we do not eat or the better if we do eat. 
So some of these Corinthian Christians did not know that idols are nothing. They grew up with idols. That was part of their childhood. They grew up believing that idols represent demonic power. They grew up believing you have to placate them with sacrifices. They grew up fearing that demonic contamination of food is a very real deal. They believed that eating food to idols, sacrifices meant you were actually worshiping that idol. So why would you eat that food? So now they become Christians, right? If they eat food sacrificed to idol, their conscience convicts them that they're doing what's wrong. Their conscience says, you're going back into that idol-worshiping lifestyle. And if they do what they believe is wrong, Satan is going to pile on the guilt and the fear and the shame and tempt them to abandon their walk with Jesus. Paul says, don't tempt them to violate their conscience. Now, your conscience doesn't determine what's right or wrong. Your conscience is a guidance mechanism, and all it does is it tells you whether you are behaving consistent with what you believe is right or wrong. Correct? A thief's conscience will convict him if they tell the truth about their friends. You don't rat out your friends, for heaven's sakes. You never tell the truth about your friends, because they're a thief like you. A Christian's conscience will convict him if they tell a lie about their friends. Both consciences are working. It's just that one conscience has been informed by the word of God and one conscience has been informed by the devil, right? Both consciences are working and bringing conviction about what you should or shouldn't do. How many remember the movie Pinocchio? Pinocchio. Jiminy Cricket said what? Always let your conscience be your guide. That's true only if your conscience is guided by God's word. Because you can have a corrupted conscience. You can ignore your conscience long enough to the point where it stops talking to you. Or even worse, it starts giving you bad advice. Right? Paul says, look. Some of these family members in the church, their conscience needs to be informed by the knowledge of God's word. They believe that these idols really are something and they're not. They believe that if they eat that food, it's sacrificed to those idols, it really is going to hurt them. That's not true, but they need to be informed by that. Here's the reality. Your relationship with God does not depend on your diet. Aren't you grateful? I mean, no, more ice cream is not going to help, not going to hurt either. Food is neutral, just in the same way singleness or marriage is neutral. God doesn't care if you worship him with hymns or country or rock and roll or jazz or big band. God doesn't care if you come to church in a suit, in jeans, in a short or a t-shirt. Doesn't matter. Flip-flops, shoes, doesn't matter to him. God doesn't care if you drink coffee, Coke, tea. God doesn't care if you don't drink anything. I had a guy about three years ago come to church, suit and tie, man, he was dressed. Came to class, this is probably five years ago. Wonderful guy, Dutch, like you and me. And uh, he talked to me after about three weeks. He said, uh, I see that you carry coffee in church. And I was gonna say something like, Rob, you know, well, if I don't drink coffee, I don't stay awake, you know, come on. But I said, yeah, I do. He says, um, he says how can you worship God with a cup of coffee in your hand? 
And I said, well, I, I was going to say something like, you know, God doesn't like to hear me snore, so the coffee's probably good. But at any rate, this was a major issue for him. Of course, there's several hundred of us that drink coffee in church, etc. For him, that was a cultural gig. For him, it was wrong. Actually, for him, it was wrong not to wear a suit and a tie. That's the standard he had to have in order to worship. And I respected that, right? We live in a culture here at Valley where you can kind of dress how you want. You can kind of show up like you want. You, I mean, you know, just come. God looks at the inside. We're not too worried about the outside. There are other folks of different persuasions that believe that you have to look a certain way, dress a certain way, that they have to do that. And if they have that conviction, no problem. But if you take your list of do's and don'ts and impose it on somebody else, that's a problem. Because if it doesn't come from God, it's just your opinion. Well, personal opinion doesn't mean a whole lot at that point. Matter of fact, the church, when you look back, there was revolts in churches 150 years ago when they brought a, a piano in. Because only an organ was, you know, that's all you could do. I have friends in the Orthodox Church. One of them's actually a, 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 a priest, I guess a monk or whatever you want to call it. They don't use any music at all. It's like friends of ours in the Church of Christ. It's all a cappella. You know, no, no, no instruments. That's what they believe you have to have to worship. But those are morally neutral areas. God's not, God doesn't care. You want to use a guitar, use a guitar. If you want to use an organ, use an organ. If you want to sing a cappella, sing a cappella. These are all morally neutral areas. God does care about the condition of our heart on the inside, not the stuff on the outside. So in 1 Corinthians 8, the issue here is not the food. That's not the point. It's the welfare of your church family. God says, I do care about how your behavior impacts the rest of my family, verse 9. But take care that this liberty of yours, the liberty to eat whatever you want, the liberty to eat this food sacrifice to idols, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Here's the principle. When you love someone, you will limit your personal liberty for their spiritual benefit. When you love someone, you will limit your personal liberty for their spiritual benefit. I expect you to swallow hard on this one. If you don't, you won't. Let's talk about this. Knowledge says idols are nothing. This great rib I just went on sale at the butcher shop right next to the temple. It's discounted. I'm going to buy it, grill it, eat it. No problem. Love says, I'm going to choose not to eat this meat because my brother believes it's wrong and I don't want to do anything that will cause him to stumble in his faith. A stumbling block is just means an occasion to sin. You don't want to behave in a way that gives a brother or a sister an occasion to sin. Think about like a parent and child. You limit your freedom because for the benefit of your child because you love your child, right? I mean, that's pretty obvious. When you're pregnant, are you free to drink alcohol? Uh, of course, you can drink alcohol. 
Most people, because they love their babies, choose not to drink when they're pregnant because they can lead to fetal alcohol syndrome, and I've seen that, right? So you, you, you choose to limit your behavior by what will benefit those you love. Don't set an example that someone may stumble over when they're trying to follow you. You've all had young children, and you've all had young children, and you're walking through the intersection, correct? How many of you just stride through the intersection at your own pace and say, kid, follow me, best of luck? <laughs> I mean, they're two and a half years old, right? You just walk on ahead, they'll figure it out. I mean, I can walk through the intersection, they can walk through the intersection. What's the problem? It's a red light. I mean, come on, let them walk, right? That's not what you do. You take them by the hand and you walk at their pace, right? So you're adjusting your behavior based on your love for that person. So you're limiting your freedom to what their needs are. Last month, <clears throat> a group of friends and I went skiing at Mammoth. And I ski every year, and uh, most of the time. And, but I'm skiing with a couple of friends who are expert ski instructors. And they can handle double black diamonds, no problem. If you ever skied the Cornus at, um, at uh, Mammoth, it's 11,000 feet, and there's a little physical drop off. You literally kind of just drop. And if, you know, if you've ever done that after lunch, it's, you get some interesting outcomes. <laughs> but this group can handle everything. Now we had some folks in our group that could ski green, that's bunny. Some could ski blue. Some could do single black, some could do double black. I mean, we had a whole range at that point in time. But these husband and wife, husband ski instructors, they took us on slopes according to our ability, not their ability, right? Because they were helping us become good skiers. If you really want to terrify somebody and never have them ski again, you take somebody who can ski on a bunny slope and you put them on the chair and you take them to the top and you set them on a double diamond. And they will slide on their bottom all the way down and they will never ski again, right? So this ski instructor has limited their freedom by our ability. Of course, when the other guys went in, he and I then, I went to the top and had a great time. No, no broken bones, which is good. So Paul is saying, if exercising my freedom causes another to stumble, then my freedom has created problems for them. If you're trying to reach a Jew or a Muslim for Jesus and you're having dinner with them, don't order pork, right? You have the freedom to eat pork, but they have convictions that pork is wrong. Why would you put a barrier between them and Jesus by exercising your freedom to eat pork, right? Does that make sense? Paul says, look, Jesus loved people enough to give up his life for them. Can't you give up a pulled pork sandwich? Really, right? Verse 12. And so by sinning against the brethren <clears throat> and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Here's the principle. It is a sin to exercise my freedom of conscience when I know that it will tempt someone else to violate their conscience. 
It is a sin to exercise my freedom of conscience when I know that it will tempt someone else to violate their conscience. Now I realize we all have freedom in Christ to do things that God does not forbid. We have enormous freedom. And I promise you that there are some people that I will be a stumbling block to unknowingly. I mean, there's some people that go, Brad, I had one of my, well, he never became a client, but 30 years ago he said, I can't do business with anybody that's got a beard. Just a stumbling block. I'm going, okay, well, I'm not taking the beard off. You know, that's kind of who I am. So there's a lot of other advisors you can probably work with, right? No problem. He told me, don't like the beard. Okay. But if I know it's causing someone to morally stumble, then I have an obligation to limit my freedom. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 6, whoever causes one of these little ones, that's not necessarily children, it's little ones in the faith, who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone, that's a 75-pound lower stone that they ground grain in, hung around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, those are opportunities to sin, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. So the issue is not whether you have the freedom to do something, the issue is how your freedom will impact the faith of another. Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, love serves. So if we love others, we are responsible to exercise our freedom in such a way that will encourage their faith and not discourage their faith. I used to work in drug and alcohol rehab years and years and years ago uh, for the county up Modesto. And I had the freedom to drink. But when I'm hanging out with somebody who's really struggling with sobriety, do you think it's loving to order a beer in front of them when we're having dinner? Are you kidding? If I love them, I'm going to encourage them to make good choices, not bad choices. Why would I put a stumbling block in front of them? It's tempting them to violate their conscience and go back. You know, if Christ gave up his life for their benefit, I should be willing to give up a beer for their spiritual benefit. You think? Did that sound reasonable? Yeah, I know, you're struggling with this, right? <laughs> if you have a friend who's struggling to lose weight, don't invite him to lunch at a buffet. Right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make this practical. Here, you get your, get your head around it. If you have a friend who struggles with gossip, you don't say, did you hear about so-and-so? We need to put him on the prayer list. <laughs> you just don't do that. That's loving a family member to say, this is what this person is dealing with. How can I exercise my freedom to serve them instead of exercise my freedom to only do what I want to do and let them fend for themselves? So if you love someone, you're going to limit your freedom for their benefit. We will behave like Jesus did. Philippians 2 Paul says, do nothing, Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So love limits freedom because you care about the spiritual benefit of another. So we have this tremendous freedom in Christ, but Jesus Christ did not set us free just to please ourselves. He set us free and gave us this freedom to use 
to love and serve others just like he did. Did he have freedom in heaven? Enormous. So he came to earth, what? As a baby. That's a little limitation of freedom. Philippians 2 says he went to the cross on our behalf. That's really limiting your freedom for those he served. So Tom's going to come and lead us in our prayer and praise time. Let me give you a summary again. First point, people who know it all puff themselves up. People who love others build them up. Number two, God's word should always be the source of our knowledge, not the wisdom of the world. This is where Paul goes back to, look, idols are nothing, and you know that. That comes from God's word. Number three, when you love someone, you will limit your personal liberty for their spiritual benefit. By the way, if you're not willing to limit your liberty for someone's spiritual benefit, do you love them? Good question. And number four, it's a sin to exercise my freedom of conscience when I know that it will tempt someone else to violate their conscience. I think we have enough to work on for the next 167 hours. Yes? I love you all. That's why we teach God's word straight up. And now that you know...